Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. Hey guys, hope you're having a great day. In case you hadn't picked up on this, I'm a huge fan of the direct care model for physicians. I think it's a great way to sidestep the problems that exist, a lot of the problems, not all of them, but a lot of the problems that exist in the system of healthcare by eliminating this relationship with insurances and the big healthcare systems. That in itself cuts out a lot of this waste and this bureaucracy that exists. And more importantly, I think it shifts the control back into the hands of the physician and the patient and more directly connects them. In working with direct care physicians and having them as guests on the podcast, I don't think a, I can think of a single physician that is burning out. And in fact, they're really excited about their work and just love to talk about it. You can check out, I had my friends Ryan and Katie Brown on a while back to talk about breaking away from primary care to start a concierge practice. And they're a great example of doing a more direct care model. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking with more direct care physicians so that you can hear their stories. So make sure to check those out. So I would love it if more physicians just completely jumped ship and went all in on this direct care model overnight. But I also recognize that it's kind of a big jump. And a lot of you are probably like, yeah, you know, is there a little bit less of an, an intense switchover? And maybe, maybe some of you are interested in some sort of a middle ground. So the good news is that there's a fantastic middle ground that I've recently discovered and so many of you get into this get into this platform that exists relatively easily and today I'm excited to have a conversation with the founder of this platform that is designed to help match physicians with direct paying patients my guest today is a practicing vascular surgeon she's an entrepreneur and is the founder of uberdoc which if you haven't heard of it make sure to go check it out it's a really cool platform that helps physicians to have kind of a side hustle while still carrying on their normal practice, but have that side hustle that, you know, still utilizes their expertise and also gives them the opportunity to test out this direct to patient care model. So I think a lot of you are going to be interested in just at least checking out this platform. I'm super interested in it. And so my guest today is Dr. Paula Muto. In our conversation, we talk about some of the problems within healthcare, she shares a lot more info about UberDoc, and we discuss how it's helping solve some of these big problems in healthcare. So we also talk a little bit about this idea of physician entrepreneurship. Her being a physician entrepreneur, she has a lot of insight in that. And so make sure to check out the end too, where we talk about her predictions for the future of healthcare and the direct care model. So I'm excited to share the conversation with you, and I'd love to jump into it now. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Paula, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We've kind of been catching up on some of the cool things you're doing. You're doing a lot of really cool things as far as solutions in healthcare. And, you know, you've got this Uber doc thing that's really, really cool. I'm kind of obsessed with it. I was checking out the website. I'm like, how did this thing exist for so long? And I didn't know about it. And so I'm excited to talk about that stuff. A lot of cool different things you're doing. But before we get into that, I was hoping if you could kind of share with our listeners a little bit about you and like kind of how you've gotten to where you are professionally. 
Sure. So, and thank you. I like to think we're the best kept secret, but uh, anyway, so I'm a general and vascular surgeon, probably from birth. My dad was a great surgeon. I'm married to a great surgeon. My brother is a surgeon and two uncles all in Massachusetts for a collective century. So you can see it's kind of the family business. So I've been in private practice my entire career. You know, I trained in Boston and I'm about 20 miles outside Boston working in both like for-profit hospital, independent hospital that cannibalized each other. We went through pre-Romney care, Romney care, Obamacare, value-based care, you know, so I'm a kind of a frontline person watching all of this. And then I started to realize the system is terrible and patients are not getting what they need and they're getting charged way too much and they're getting delayed. So I said, how could I fix this? So I started to write angry letters. <laughs> so an angry letters to the Wall Street Journal or New York Times. But so then I thought, is it is it just about writing angry letters or could I try to change it? So I came up with a very simple solution. I said, what if a patient could find a doctor who was nearby and available, make an appointment without making a phone call and pay a transparent price? What? And make that price a little lower than commercial insurance but a little above Medicare to be legal. And then I went to my doctors. I said, would you take a patient for a little less money if they paid you cash? And of course they said, absolutely. So I went to my doctor's lounge and then I went to other doctor's lounges and I went across the state and then I went to other professions and that specialties and I crossed the country multiple times and I couldn't find a doctor who said no to me. So then I knew we had it. We have all of the doctors who are coming to the table to take care of patients through a transparent model. And so that's how... It all started. And so at now I'm 59. So at 52 years old, this is my third child. <laughs> when I'm married, I have two kids. It's like they went off to college. I'm like, now what? I'm still yeah. a practicing surgeon. I see my patients every day because I think it's really important. And we've built this platform now in 48 states, close to 5,000 doctors, another 5,000 onboarding. We want every doctor to give us a seat in their waiting room for an Uber doc patient. You know, that doesn't mean, you know, it's just next to your Medicare patient, next to your Medicaid patient, just give a patient, put a seat aside for someone who needs it, who's willing to pay cash to come in to see it, transparent price and whatever happens after that could be through insurance or between you and the doctor. That's a lot of physicians. You said 5,000? Yeah, we're, we're joining. We have a lot of doctors <laughs> and in every specialty, 55 specialties, we get, we have really wonderful doctors. So it's everything from, and every doctor is a specialist. So it's everything from a, you know, a pediatrician to a neurosurgeon, to an endocrinologist, to an orthopedic. We don't have any mid-levels on our platform. So these are all physicians or PhDs in, psychi in psychology. Yeah. And it sounds like you're growing fast as well. We are growing quickly because doctors are kind of fed up really, and they need a place to see their patients and we're giving them a place. Now I had, should say before COVID, we had access to telemedicine because the person who created telemedicine said, my God, you have the model. It's what I've dreamed about is like putting the technology of telemedicine in the hands of an end user, meaning a brick and mortar doctor to connect better with their patient. So I said, no, oh, I don't know. Why would a doctor and like, why would a surgeon need telemedicine? And now it's like, oh my gosh, we use it all the time. So we added, so when the concept of nearby and available, nearby sort of took on a new definition. So you could find that doctor five miles away, or you could find that doctor 200 miles away in your state that could potentially help you get on the path to finding your definitive care. Yeah. It's an interesting model. It's actually pretty simple. And it reminds me a lot of, I'll kind of give you the quick story. I was, you know, I've been in the financial services business for years and years and the financial services industry, it's, although it's not the same problems, it has a lot of somewhat similar problems or same, you know, flavor of problems as healthcare, like the system kind of has a lot of control over the, you know, advisors, I'm saying in air quotes, and there's a lot of products pushed and a lot of incentives that are questionable, tons of conflicts of interest in my industry. And so what I realized, so I used to be kind of in the thick of all that. And what I realized is ultimately the client's paying. I mean, it's all kind of hurting the in client. And, you know, you just, when I was honest with myself, I'm like, I don't really feel good about what I'm doing. And so I left in 2014 and started my planning business. And basically I'm like, okay, I'm going to cut out all that junk and we're just going to charge people and they're going to pay us. <laughs> 
and it's a monthly fee. Like there's no, nothing else besides people pay us and we provide advice and service. Well, it's called fee for service. Correct. And in the last, you know, few decades, fee for service has gotten a bad rap. But if you think about it, we're a service industry. And I think that the the reason fee for service has been just the war on the doctors. It's like somehow or another, you know, the doctors got painted that we were too expensive, that we were charging too much, that we were doing unnecessary things. And Honestly, if you look at the way the outcomes have gone, we hit a zenith. We were really good with our outcomes. The stuff that we were doing was pretty amazing. People are living to 100. People are living at home. People, you know, your cholesterol is under control. I don't operate on your arteries anymore. I take I, I, patients of mine go home after surgery. You know, we've had so much amazing technology. And during the, and that's because we've been a service profession dedicated to making those changes for the patients. I think what happens is, like you said, there's a lot of ancillary stuff that kind of gets added to the mix. And when you put a third party in the equation and then, you know, the costs can run away. And I think when government steps in and starts to subsidize, it's just like college tuition, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, someone else is paying the bill. Well, we can do a little extra. And we saw such a sea change in our profession almost in the last 15 years when, you know, the, when suddenly there was more access to payment beyond the patient things started to, you know, we started throwing things away. We started wasting things, you know, now until COVID when we suddenly can't throw a mask away anymore. <laughs> Before that, we like literally were told we couldn't reuse things. We could, had to throw away things. We had to not be very green and for not really any good scientific reason. But I think that, you know, the narrative has always been about this kind of like globalization, standardization of healthcare and that there's sort of a one size fits all. And that's just not where medicine is. It's extremely precision. It's the most personal thing in your life is your health. And there's so many wonderful, inexpensive ways to keep you healthy. That, But you have to get to the people who are learned that spend their lifetime in the service to do that. And I think that's what makes us kind of unique in this model is we're trying to return people, push, you know, you know tell them that there's this option for them. Yeah, I like it. So I have a strong belief in the physicians being ethical and solid and smart. And there's all these qualities, like very experienced and specialized. And there's all these good qualities. I get to work with physicians all the time. And I am super confident in the physicians I know. And I think it, a lot of it is the system has caused a lot of these problems and putting, you know, more power in the hands of the physician is a big step in the right direction. And that's essentially what your system, your business is doing is it's kind of helping connect the dots more directly. It's also reminding the doctor that the patient's paying. I think we've forgotten that in this mix, right? You don't, you never worried about ordering the extra CAT scan or the extra test or the blood test. You know, if you were in academics, it was because it was academic. It didn't change what you did for the patient. If you were in like practice, you'd say, oh, well, I'd feel more comfortable. That was a famous line. I would feel more comfortable if I got another image. It's like, but is it about me feeling more comfortable or you, the patient? <laughs> and at the end of the day, the concern and the fear and the anxiety that generated the test, now that test is the patient is paying extra for that. And I feel like that generates a whole nother layer of anxiety and pain for the patient. And then not to say that you should ever with, withhold important treatment, but, but many times, you know, we kind of forgot that there is in fact a patient at the end of that equation that either has to receive that treatment or pay for that treatment. I think in the 1960s and 70s, we had a very paternalistic model of medicine, right? It was born out of this kind of military model, top down. We know what's best for you. Doctors know what's best for you, right? But over the years, it's really shifted. We are much more collaborative with our patients. Our patients have access to way more. Remember the physician desk reference. You didn't even know what a drug was, the formulary, like how it was constructed. Only a physician could have that book. It was the magic book, right? Now it's like, you know, you push a button, you can see every medication practically as it's being made. So we've shifted a great deal of knowledge and access to information to the patient. And because of that, we need to meet our patients halfway. So I think we've gone from a top-down approach to a much more mutual collaborative approach. And our healthcare system has not followed. In fact, it's gotten worse. It's worse. It's much more top-down than it's ever been. And I think that's where those resources are being squandered. Yeah. And so it seems simple to me. It's like, okay, well, let's just work outside the system <laughs> in certain capacities. But you can't completely work outside the system because people 
have medical expenses that are too expensive and un, un, unanticipated expenses. Like, could you drive your car without car insurance? Of course not, because you could insure your car because in case you get in that accident. But do you use your car insurance for your oil change? Probably not. No. Never. If you did, car insurance would be a lot more expensive. Or like a tiny fender bender. It's like, if it's a $200 claim, like, do you really want to use your insurance? Because they're going to raise your rates. Exactly. So hello, deductible. You have a high deductible health plan. What's the first thing you do is you pay out of pocket anyways. And then you say, I want to go through my insurance so that my insurance company knows so it can quote, go against my deductible, which you will never reach, right? Most patients never reach their deductible, but the insurance company has a record of that. And then the following year, when they negotiate the terms of your insurance or with your employer, they say, oh, utilized. <laughs> it's kind of like tell your car insurance person, I dented my fender, but it was underneath my deductible. I paid for it, but please make sure you make a record that I had an accident. Yeah. That's the way insurance works. But health insurance, we're trained in this kind of odd way, but you need health insurance. You need government subsidy. Those are things you don't live without, but you don't need them at the level that we have them. I think that the patients need a lot more control of their healthcare dollar. And I think they could spend it better in many places that they perhaps couldn't have spent before. And UberDoc is just one of those mechanisms to find people where you can spend that healthcare dollar in a, you know, in a more direct fashion with more value for you. Insurance is part of the equation. It shouldn't be all of it. Well, it would be incredibly difficult to like completely exclude insurance or self-insure completely and for an individual, especially and. You just have to have, I mean, there's such a catastrophe type situation you could come up with it and there is a place for it, but it's these little things that have like primary care, especially, I mean, it's decimated. And so, but also part of getting back to the behavior of the insurance companies, you know, they've been enabled quite a bit in the last 20 years and they've been allowed to grow and consolidate services, which includes setting the price for medications. Say, for example, now I can go to Dr. Muto and she's affordable. So maybe I don't need to carry that huge insurance anymore. Well, now, but Dr. Muta is going to prescribe that medication and that medication. Well, that medication, it was $5. Now it's $500, right? <laughs> so you better buy the insurance to buy that medication. You see how the insurance company owns the pharmacy benefit manager. So they're the ones who are setting the prices. And then there are people like that are disrupting the model, like Mark Cuban's company, cost plus, which is just saying, Hey, we can buy it. You can have it for 15%. <laughs> That's it. Like, in other words, we're not going to add anything else to this. And I think that those kind of models are important and they're in demand. And ultimately, you know, the Congress and the federal government will have to decide how much of our tax dollar wants to continue to go to fuel these middlemen who are like really increasing the price for everyone. And I think that's something that needs to be, the voters need to consider very significantly. So how might this work for like a, say I'm a practicing physician, I have maybe a specialized, like say I'm a surgeon, how does this like fit into my existing practice? So it's built and designed at the level of a fourth grader, which is great. So we're not, we're very antiquated. <laughs> we don't integrate electronic records. You're really simple. We're just an appointment maker. So that doctor like most doctors are creatures of habit. You see patients on Monday, you operate on Tuesday, you go to the clinic on Wednesday. So you just find one of those routine days and say, okay, give me a seat in your waiting room. You start your day at 8.30, put a seat aside for 8.15. It's like a house seat at a Broadway show. It's like the critic seat and let it sit every week for the next 52 weeks, that seat's there unless you're on vacation and see if someone buys it, that's all. So it doesn't disrupt their schedule. They see their patients. They do their show eight times a week like they do for their entire audience, right? I always think about it that way. Like you go to a show, everybody bought their ticket a different way, right? You ticket master, ticket Tron, you know, whatever you bought at the box office. It's just the doctor does whatever they do normally. It's just that patients come into that seat through a direct pay model. And then if the surgeon has to operate, they can say, well, would you want to use your insurance? Do you want to go through cash? You know, in other words, at that point, it's still, or you may not need surgery at all. But for a doctor, it's kind of a nice way of seeing a patient and getting immediate payment for that. You're just giving them a slot of your time, essentially. Yeah. And sometimes they don't need anything. And if a patient doesn't show up and doesn't cancel appropriately, they get they get to keep like, you know, the patient loses the $50 and the doctor gets to keep $25. So it's like, hey, you know, I put my time aside and the patient didn't show up. And I think that's fair. 
And that's why our no-show rate's like zero because patients, when they pay, <laughs> they show up. Right. Um, so, so that's how we differ from a lot of these appointment makers. Everybody has an appointment maker. Oh, everybody, you know, book your own appointment. But in doctor's offices, that's really tricky because of referrals, authorizations. Are you in the network? Are you out of network? We All that doesn't matter with UberDoc. Doesn't matter. And then, of course, what's the price? They put their price right out there. So we get a we price transparency, access to care. That's what our mission has always been. Really, that's all we do. We're very simple. Yeah. And so when someone opens up that slot, it's just, you know, they start to experience it. Have you seen people adopt it more? They're like, well, why don't we do two, two slots? Like, so some doctors are like, they're so excited, right? So it depends on the specialty, right? Like right. psychiatry, you know, like it, it, there's a high demand, orthopedic, ENT, general surgery. Oh, that's like me. It's like, I always think it's like dermatology is like a Hamilton ticket. Ooh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> general surgery is kind of like cats, right? <laughs> it's like, you may not be the top of everybody's list, but they, but there's an internet presence. It was very important for me to make sure that my doctors had a page on the internet. They needed to be found on the internet. Even if a patient ends up calling the office and saying, oh, there's a surgeon that's located five miles from me. That's still really important because to be able to give that information to people, you know, making the Uber doc, an appointment through the UberDoc model is fluid, easy, simple, one step. Patients love it. You know, offices, sometimes it's a foreign to them, right? Because they're so used to saying, excuse me, you have to stop here at the toll booth to let me check your passport. Make sure you have a visa before you walk in, right? There's a process and a workflow in an office. And sometimes it's hard to undo the incumbent, right? Because they're coming in through, you know, this wonderful push a button back door. You don't need to do all of that, right? Unless afterwards you need surgery or an x-ray or something, maybe then you need it. But so it's like, so, so, so that's kind of been a little bit of our challenge is that is some offices that are still like trying to embrace this easy pass. <laughs> right. It's like the people who still go in the toll booth lane because they haven't gotten their transponder yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I gotta just go in that point, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe they have a transponder, but they still end up in the wrong lane. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that's basically there's a cultural divide sometimes with that. Are there physicians that would not be able to utilize that due to their I can imagine like hospital employed so when we first started this, hospital-employed doctors were really anxious to join. And we went to every hospital in Boston and all the medical leadership and even the CFOs, they were like, oh my God, this is great. But then, of course, hospital administration is like, you know, it's like a pushing line or it goes and said, by 2032, we're going to adopt this, right? <laughs> Nothing goes very fast, right? Um, and the doctors are really quite frustrated because they're so super talented. Like, like I'm like a, you know, a left adrenal specialist. I want more patients, right? The challenge at the hospital level was that at the time there were facility charges, which I think that depending on the state, the insurance and the requirements, oftentimes those are not allowed billable anymore. They're billable, but they're not collectible. If by a facility charge, it means if I see you in my office, I just bill in a code for the visit. If I see you in the hospital, the hospital will bill like a piece of that because I'm and I'll get a little bit less money because that quote 20% is the overhead. That 20% used to not be collectible. And then some people thought it was collectible. And depending on what deal you have, you know, you can get a facility charge. So to be an Uber doctor, a doctor in a facility, you have to waive that, right? You can't take the facility charge. You're just going to get paid, <laughs> right? So, and so the doctors always wonder like, well, who gets paid? It's like, I always say, whoever pays your secretary gets paid. Whoever pays your office staff. That's, you know, wherever the money goes from Blue Cross is where the money should go for UberDoc. And that's where they sort of push it up the ladder and then nobody has an answer. And so now doctors can join no matter what, we have them all over in the academic hospitals. They're fabulous. They do second opinions. They see patients. They're defiant now. And I mean, I, could I be like a 1099 side hustle side sort of thing? So so the doctors, and this is really funny because of the new legislation on like non-competes, right? They're trying to get rid of non-competes because it really restricts access tremendously. And But if no, if you're a top doctor, you can be on UberDoc and you can see that patient. And patients have like you know, come into the institution because of that. People do also digital, you know, second opinion telemedicine, things like that. But my, my really institutions are now looking at us and we're like, oh, wait a minute, this makes sense. <laughs> this is a cat's lane. I get it now, right? Because they don't have anyone answering phones. They're, this, the hospitals are completely understaffed. 
even on a good day, it's really hard to train and retain people to do the nuclear codes necessary to get a patient in the door and get payment for it. So this actually is, is sort of simple. And my, my dream and my request, and we're beginning to see it now, is that every doctor can be an Uber doc, whether you're sitting in a, you know, in a Mayo Clinic as a super specialist, or sitting in Mississippi in a rural clinic, or sitting in you know, Colorado as a psychiatrist. Anyone should give, everyone can be an Uber doc as long as you're credentialed, and there's no reason not to. It's like a simplified way to interact in these consult-type visits that are necessary, but then they're being bogged down by the system. It's like I go see a specialist because I got, you know, sleep doctor or something like that, and I got to go do the paperwork and wait in the line and go through the system, and then the it takes an hour and a half because it's busy at that point in time, and, you know, it's just... Or fresh... you get delayed. I mean, so many times people get sent for, like, a bunch of other places before they get that definitive care. And if the system were staffed by credentialed people, but, you know, we've lost 110,000 doctors right now. It's hard to find. Your walking clinics are staffed by many mid-levels that are not always completely supervised. There's a tremendous incentive in the marketplace to cut back on the, quote, expensive physicians. You know, emergency medicine has felt this. You know, other specialties have felt this. And primary care is decimated, as we talked about. And the problem with all that is our outcomes have shifted. <laughs> our outcomes started to go south before COVID. They started to reverse because mm. of this trend to consolidation. So at some point, we just have to say, this isn't working. Yeah. Um, we need to go back to putting the doctors in charge, but add a little technology to it so that it's better, faster, cheaper. And luckily, we've continued to move forward and as a medical as met the medical establishment has continued to grow forward with, you know, AI and the way we develop drugs and treatments, it's like breathtaking speed, what's out there. And it's just like the whole system is like a drag chute holding it back. You know, we're still, they're still digging phone lines to put in like, you know, digging trenches for phone lines. It's like, we don't need any of that anymore. Right? Yes. Right. Um, Who has a landline? <laughs> well, exactly. And that's because that landline is where the resources, the money, the tradition, that paternalistic model of medicine from the 60s is rooted in. And I think we just have to understand it's okay to say it worked then, it doesn't work now. Yeah. And so like a lot of the physicians, it sounds like on your platform are kind of like in a hybrid, like they're just kind of opening up a slice of their day for yeah, this I mean, sort of setup. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, I know of people I work with and you know, the direct care model, a lot, some physicians go like all in on that. Which is model. great. I mean, it's hard to do that depending on where you are and your payer mix and your, the economics of your, of the geography where you're at. I know many doctors like, you know, who have gone all in for direct pay and they are phenomenal. And then other people who kind of dip their toe in it and other people are kind of scared. We like to be that bridge you know, and just see what happens. I think that it is hard, again, depending on if you have a lot of Medicare patients, for example, in your panel, and then you go direct pay, they and they you ask them to pay monthly or annually, and some of those patients just can't do it, and but they don't want to give you up. So that's why we like our model, because it's kind of a la carte concierge, which at the same time, those same doctors that are reluctant to be a direct pay doctor have are booked out six weeks. You can't get in. They tell you go across the street to the walk-in where you have to pay $300. It's like, why don't you just say, go online and book with me tomorrow? I have mm. special seats aside for people that, so why would you give that $300 to like the walk-in where they're going to get prescribed something that you're going to end up having to take care of anyways? So we're just trying to get doctors to think like, it's okay. It's like perfectly okay for you to take cash from your own patients and not necessarily, you know, do anything wrong with that. I think there's a great sense that charging a patient anything is wrong, but honestly, patients are charged way more in, you know, in what they've put into the system through their payroll, through their, you know, paycheck, through their taxes, <laughs> through their insurance, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, you know, ultimately, you know, a direct, a transparent transaction, it's not that expensive seeing a patient in the office or it shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty straightforward and it seems like a lot of people would, I think, be interested in it because I know that there's a lot of people that like the idea of simplifying or, you know, direct to patient or direct care or whatever you want to call it, but they're intimidated by the 
risk of it all and making the jump and going all in. And there's not a system in their practice or hospital setting that's like helping them to bridge the gap at all. And so that. It's just a supermarket aisle for cash. At some point, everyone needs to do it. The pushback is that the fear is that if you show a price, you're stuck with that price. But the only fear of showing a price <laughs> yeah. is that the insurers make you afraid to show. They don't want you to show that price, right? Because then they're the value of their, their product, right? And why would I need to buy all this insurance? Like if I could add up what I pay. So I always like the thought of like individual health equity is what I call it. Like you're buying a house with a mortgage or you're paying rent. <laughs> you know, and insurance is like rent, right? And you pay a lot of rent and the rent keeps going up and the landlord doesn't pay your electricity anymore. They don't pay your water bill. <laughs> you know, like if you think about it, you know, and then, but when you buy a house, you're still paying money every month, but some of that, but that month is that, but some that money will come back to you in equity. And I think like if you put into a health savings account, some of that premium be really nice to be able to say, well, this is what I can pay out of pocket. I mean, ideally, if you paid all every doctor visit out of pocket and just used insurance for the hospital or something expensive, that would make a lot of sense. And the cost would go way down. Of the cost insurance. would go way down. Doctors would get funded. Uh, they would keep their offices open. The problem is like nobody right now, it's like you, you pay this high premium. Then you have this deductible. Then you still have to pay for your surgery. You still have to pay for your doctor. Like the patients have, they don't understand. And prices are skyrocketing because of the lack of transparency partially. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons, but I mean, it's like it's not going the right direction. It's, you just have to look at the numbers and see the massive profit. And it's booing the consumer price index and maybe helping something, but it's not right. It's not right anymore because it's not the way we practice medicine. Now, interfering, it's, it's not facilitating. I will say it's obstructing the way we, and patients are afraid to get care. They're not afraid anymore of their disease. They're afraid of their bill, you know, and doctor can control that piece of it by being transparent if they have the autonomy within their practice to do so. And that's the weapon that I give them with UberDoc. Yeah. I mean, as a patient, I'm like very, there's a lot of appeal to me to just paying somebody, you know, a few hundred dollars to get that objectivity and reduction of conflicts and dedicated time and focus and attention and not You're working for line. your patient. It's like you're showing up in my office with a bag of grain, right? <laughs> I used to say like you deliver someone's baby, they give you a goat, mm. right? I mean, there's like, there's something very pure about that. It also increases the patient's, you already mentioned this, I think that was before we were recording maybe, but like the, when someone pays for something, they become more vested. In the current healthcare system, you don't pay for your anything. So it's like, ah, they're not, the patients are not but as- But they are paying. You see, the whole business of like, patients need skin in the game. They have more than skin. They have blood, they have their bodies in the game. It's just that they've been told that if you pay it, through this third party. Like in other words, it's somehow going to be of higher value to you. But the third party payment now is higher than the payment that the physician or the care actually. The cost of care is cheaper than the cost of managing that care. And when I mean by managing care, I mean that kind of insurance, financial, healthcare system, you know, data collection, so forth. The actual cost of caring for you is much cheaper than that. So, so then you're saying, well, what am I doing all this for? Sharing my data so that, you know, in, they can continue to make tables to ultimately ration care. It's like, you know what? They can get that data in many other ways and they can get it anonymously. They do not need it through all of this massive data collection. And we spend a lot of time and energy on data, we spend more protecting data, and yet we cannot share data. I cannot look at an x-ray from a hospital that I'm no longer part of, and my patients can't see it. They can give me their portal, but I still can't see it. So now I just tell them, please just take a picture of it on your iPhone. <laughs> you know, I you get a disc. They give you a disc. It's like, I don't have a computer that opens a disc. <laughs> yeah, well, what do you do with a CD? We are completely, and yet the technology every happens every day with your phone. You share photos all the time, you know, and that's their files that may or may not compress. But at the end of the day, eyes need to look at things to make decisions and get that blood test or figure out what that report was because you just need that piece of information. 
but now our information is all the lines are crossed and it'll and nothing's shared. So if I'm a physician that's curious about this or maybe even, you know, like the idea and I want to kind of like jump on board, can you just be like go on the website and apply for something? Yeah, so we go to they can go to joinuberdoc.com or they can go to the, our website's uberdoc.com. But if they go to joinuberdoc.com and they just fill out the form and we get them started within like 10 minutes, they can be on the site as long as they're credentialed. We do have requirements. You have to be boarded in the specialty that you practice. That's important. You know, in other words, you can't be like a, an orthopedic surgeon that wants to do gynecology. <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't... Understandable. You have to be licensed in the state that you practice. So we follow state line regulations, in, including telemedicine. You know, you, you can't be, you can't have telemedicine beyond a state line unless you're licensed in that state. And you have to, if you're a, a, an interventionalist, you have to have credentials at whatever institution you do your interventions at. You have to be a good standing there. So we do have those requirements. We don't, we, we, you can be, you have to be an MD or DO. You have to be trained. You have to be probably over 35. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you can't finish all your training that. Right. We do have doctors of optometry because they're the primary cares of the eye doctors. And we have the clinical psychologists and PsyDs because they are the, you know, trained professionals for therapy. But we don't have any other mid-levels. How does UberDog make money? So from transactions. So it's like a transaction on the... We, we The visit. doctors can don't pay to join UberDoc. They just pay us when a patient uses the platform, which is about less than what they would pay for someone to schedule, bill, collect, advertise. You know, we kind of give them the it's whole probably thing. Probably lower than their overhead um, We give them the internet access, the whole thing, the appointment maker and the payment processor. If doctors, it's, you know, we, we do have subscription models as well. If doctors need something more from us, they need like telemedicine perhaps, or if they want a marketing package, or if they want to use us as their booking platform, then we would change the equation to, you know, unlimited usage kind of thing. But most patients right now, we're really going with the transactional model because we don't see UberDoc replacing your entire waiting room. That's not our intention. Our intention is everybody puts a seat aside, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Everybody puts a seat aside and that's okay. So with a doctor sees 50 patients a week, a couple of those seats are UberDoc patients. That's direct pay that pays their front end. There, if you have five doctors in the practice, that's going to pay your nurse. If you have ten doctors in the practice, that's going to pay the salary of your doctor. That's how we see it. Just a couple, two or three patients a week is all you need to be able to kind of put a little cash flow into your business and then see what happens. See what happens. Like maybe everybody on Friday books UberDoc all the time. Um, and then you open up more slots. I mean, that, this was meant to be sort of a gentle nudge into the direct pay marketplace and also give doctors a little cash flow, which is always nice to have. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been, I've kind of gotten obsessed with the direct care model as because I just, I feel like it's such a good solution and it's not the only solution. Like it doesn't cover all of the problems, but especially for primary care and some of these not all specialties, like certain, like you said, like catastrophe type stuff, you got to go through the system in some capacity. But I think the direct model is a great solution for some of these, like, you know, smaller type ticket items that you can just. And, and then... I'm going to tell you the smaller item. I mean, I operate in my office, right? What I used to do in the operating room technology has allowed me to move that out of the expensive hospital into the office more and more doctors are doing this, right? So technology, so, so those quote, smaller things are better, faster, cheaper now in these outpatient settings. Like, look at knee replacement. Oh my gosh, patients go home now. I mean, and they're doing beautifully. Like, the outcomes are so much better. Um, and whoever thought that could happen, right? So so I think that that when you think about, yes, the insurance for those catastrophic things, but then you think, okay, what can I get in an office? Is it just a visit? Is it just an exam? No, it isn't. You can get treatment. You don't just get a diagnosis. You can get definitive treatment. And, but you cannot get definitive treatment if you're not in front of someone who can offer you a definitive diagnosis. And our system is not built for that now. You spend a lot of time, I always say, wandering in the desert, going from less experienced to a little more experienced, a little more experienced. And each yeah. step of the way, you are paying, right? You're paying a copay. You're paying a, a, you know, a deductible. You're paying for an image you might not need. But when you go to the expert and they ask you like three questions, it's like, oh my God, Josh, you know, how did you know 
my restless leg was related to my veins. It's like, well, guess what? I've seen, you know, I've done this for 25 years. I've seen mm -hmm. like 50 million legs and I've heard this, <laughs> I've heard this story before. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know. I just like, you know, I'm, you know, there is some value to seeing a specialist. Right. Yeah. A lot in and, and situations. This, and we, right. And primary care doctors who have been practicing for centuries are specialists too. Again, physicians are specialists. Mm-hmm. And people have to remember that. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of uh, direct primary care physicians are referring people to your platform as well. So that's an interesting thing, too, is because a lot of DPC doctors are kind of ostracized. Like, they're kind of out of network. And they have no network. It's like, okay, so they are very excited about being able to say, here, go to an Uber doc. You know, we are creating this family, basically. I, I don't like the word network. I like the word family. Like, <laughs> or the doctor's lounge. We're recreating that doctor's lounge, those relationships. You know, I, Dr. Gold, who's a primary care physician, you know, DPC doctor, he and I just wrote a paper together, an article together. It was like, you know, a surgeon and a primary care coming together and agreeing, like, <laughs> and this ER doctor, like, logged in and said, I, you know, that I okay, here, here for that. Right. But it's just, you know, the concept of like the old time where you used to, it was a handoff. You picked up the phone, you spoke to your specialist and said, I'm concerned about this patient. Can you see mm -hmm. them today? And then you called them back and said, this is what's going on. That's the perfect healthcare because that's the patient in the middle that gets that benefit of those minds working together. And right now, there's no mechanism in place for that. In fact, the system has completely eliminated the ability to communicate, yet we have phones and Zooms and text messages. It's like there's no reason there that we can't build this in a way better way. Yeah, I had a eye, random eye incident condition thing. I don't even know how to describe it, but it was, it ended up being nothing, but I had to go see a super specialized, like ophthalmologist, neurologist. And I remember like one of the visits, it was like, well, I think they had to reschedule it. And they're like, well, we need to set up a time, but she's booked for six months. So it was like, uh, that she needs to be an Uber doc because then you see, because there's always a no-show that what people don't understand is like a lot of doctors tell us, oh, God, I don't need this. I'm booked six months. I don't need Uber doc. I'm booked. Yeah, what's like, your no. show rate? But you, your no-show rate isn't zero. And I guarantee you that even if like those 50 patients show up, you're getting paid for 20 of them. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. doesn't really matter, right? I said, so this is a re you have a financial incentive aside. And again, we don't want all 50 of your patients. We don't want, we don't want you to say, okay, now I'm booked only cash pay. That's not the intention of UberDoc. In fact, on our platform, intentionally, doctors can only offer three appointments before the next doctor shows up. We do that intentionally to make sure that you find someone, you know, who's the closest doctor to you and then the next available, you know, and we make sure to do that so that like everyone kind of is seen because we don't, we, our intention is not to empty your waiting room of your patients with appointments. It's just to give people that opportunity, that option to, to, to skip the line and they pay and you pay for it, but you don't have to pay a thousand dollars for it, right? You're not paying a premium price. You're actually paying price. That's a fair price. Right. And that's, what's odd about our model. We are actually, we flipped the equation. We've increased the access and we've actually lowered the price, which is like, how, why, how is that possible? Cut out the <laughs> fat. You cut out a lot of the fat. Right. We cut a lot. And also it's a really good, business model for a doctor. Mm. You want to see patients in your office that pay you. Well, so as we wrap up, I really wanted to talk to you about entrepreneurship just for a second, because I'd love entrepreneurship. And I think it's such a great salute. I mean, entrepreneurship is about like solving problems. And so I'm curious, would you consider yourself like an entrepreneur? Like when you were younger, oh, where you're like, oh, oh. I'm an entrepreneur. I came out of practice and went into practice on my own. And so it's actually you know, running a practice and being independent is kind of like being a business, you know, you learn how to, you know, balance books, things like that. So my dad was an inventor. We used to call him crazy inventor. Um, <laughs> and, um, but you'd call him an entrepreneur now because he used to invent things like for pacemakers and for, yeah. like, you know, thoracic, he was a thoracic surgeon. He has like something on a chest tube tray, all these things, and he'd patent them. And then he'd sell them to a company that would then, you know, put them into their kits and sell them. And you get like a royalty or something. He loved it. He loved the, all the young people he was working with and everything. So, so I found myself kind of in following in those footsteps, like the excitement of creating a platform, a technology, the smart people you're with, smart people I've met in within my profession, outside my profession. It's given me this wonderful like journey, and it's also given me an incredibly good perspective on healthcare. Like I really do understand, like 
what the insurers are thinking and what the employers are thinking. And I've always understood what the patients are thinking, you know, and the physicians in different practices and locations, it's like giving me like a really good understanding. But entrepreneurship, it's not something you just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> something you get infected with. Uh, you have that burning desire to change something and you can't live without trying to fix it. And yeah. I think most physicians internally are entrepreneurs because when a patient comes to them with a problem, they fix it. That's why you go into medicine. You want to fix things. Yep. I don't think they equate it to entrepreneurship, but I agree. Like, I think physicians are already set up to where they have a lot of the skill sets necessary yes. to be great entrepreneurs. And they're in this system that has a lot of problems. Once you start to get into entrepreneurship, you realize it's about solving problems. And so when you're in this system that has all kinds of problems, it's like kind of an entrepreneur's dream in some ways. It's like... Well, it's a challenge. The challenge to the challenge is that we're part of the problem, mm -hmm. right? We enter into a system with a certain sort of understanding and narrative, and we're ready to change in an instant when it comes to a treatment. Like if somebody tells us this procedure now replaces this one, or this treatment's better than that one, we change instantly. We adopt technology flawlessly. But we are accused of not being able to handle technology when it came to electronic records. Why? Because it didn't gel with our workflow. It actually impeded us. It didn't improve what we did. You know, and because no one asked us. <laughs> no one said, hmm. let's go to the end user and say, here's the technology, help us develop it. They completely pushed us off the table. And then we became farther and farther away from the decision makers. And then, of course, when it comes to the financials and everything else, so the doctors and our patients are not even at the table anymore to decide. No. And that's why it's funny because we've created this parallel universe over here where medicine occurs and healthcare is over here <laughs> and they don't overlap anymore. The business of healthcare is very, so far from the practice of medicine at this point. Yeah. So that it's ripe for disruption and it's ripe for be... restoration. I like to say restoration, <laughs> restoration. but yes, it, you know, it's, of course it's not sustainable. And at least everyone agrees it's not sustainable. It's just that we keep throwing patchworks at it, right? Yeah, right. Well, that's what I, one of the reasons I love what you're doing. It's a solid working solution to the problem. It's a mechanism. I like to think that UberDoc is just the mechanism for people to pivot toward direct pay without an all or nothing shift. We're a system agnostic. We do not take down the existing system. We just create another path. Right. That you're driving to the same city. You're just using a transponder now and going in a high occupancy lane. You know, you're going high vehicle lane, you know, you know, the, a commuter as opposed to going through the traffic. That's all we're doing. And eventually, if that commuter lane ends up being crowded, well, then you create another one. And then that becomes the other way to get there. Right. I mean, so this is all we're doing is just offering an opportunity. Let the end users decide. In this case, it's the patient's. And I fervently believe the patient should own their healthcare dollar. They are the best people to decide how to spend it. I don't like incentives. I think all those incentives should disappear. Don't bonus us for doing our job. Just pay us fairly. That's it. Mm -hmm. And all that extra money in the system that floats around and, and returns into networks and incentives and bonuses and programs, they should all be directed to the patient because I've just sent you home. I don't care for you now. I cut you open, pat you up and say, now you got to go home, Dan, and your family has to take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, not on me anymore. So why am I getting, why is the system getting rewarded? That money could go to you to fund the social determinants of health, right? To, to help find somebody that will help you walk up your three flights of stairs, you know, or that can stay home with you when you recover, you know, and we never even consider that. So mm. this is sort of like at the higher levels, this is the beginning of recognizing the importance of that healthcare dollar in the patient's hands. One last question. I'm super curious about this because I know you know you have a lot of um, knowledge about what's going on like you were talking about earlier. And I'm super curious about the future of direct care. And this isn't, you know, we're talking the future, so it's who knows, but I'm curious where it goes like with direct care and just, healthcare in general, but like, do you see this, I imagine direct care growing a lot and this hybrid kind of middle ground as well growing and how does it fit in with the current system? So there's no question the DPC world, the direct primary care world, they're leading the way, right? They're the ones who 
forge the path that UberDoc is following and the quality of care, the outcomes, they're unbeatable, right? I mean, they're just not, they're just, it's just, it's a better way of taking care of patients. And the reason why is because you've eliminated so much of that middleman. I think the challenge is going to be that in a direct pay marketplace, where's that hybrid going to occur? Like you have that insurance for the catastrophic and then out of pocket, what do you do? And I think if we're very transparent with that out of pocket, then you can create a really beautiful hybrid where your insurance card might have a magnetic strip behind it, <laughs> right? That, that sort of combines it and is a unified currency. So not 50,000 different insurances with 50,000 different codes, like, you know, just that alone would save money. So the challenge becomes is that the current incumbents, the current stakeholders and where people have thrown money at in terms of incentivizing controlling cost has been toward insurance companies to capitate to, you know, you know, the, you know, there's been the value-based care. And then before that it was, you know, the HMO kind of thing and the capitation models, which are kind of rationing healthcare. I think that there's so much political power behind that. That's going to be a little harder to, you know, the direct pay model is going to come up against that. You know, where do you put your money? I'd like to think that that people have to be super creative, that I would love to see Congress say, you know, Medicare patients who stay healthy, who do everything right, um, who don't utilize that money rather than going to their network that's managing their Medicare benefit should go back to the Medicare beneficiary in the form of a health savings account. And then the following year that HSA pays their direct primary care pays their eye doctor, pays their surgeon in their office. And then when they go to the hospital, their benefits, the Medicare, you know, kicks in and pays 100%. I think that's a really lovely model that will incentivize patients to kind of understand the, how their healthcare dollars spent, keeps the insurance companies doing what they were intended to do and Medicare intended to do to cover those catastrophic. And, you know, and those models I think are real. I think they're doable. I think we're not that far away from them, but if you're going to pay out of pocket, there has to be some benefit. You know, there has to be some decrease in payments somewhere else. You can't just pay out of pocket and pay a massive premium. Mm -hmm. It's like, that doesn't work. You know, and I'm very hopeful that that, what I call the DPO, the direct pay option will start to infiltrate and become, you know, a, a nice addition to the healthcare choices. Yeah. Well, I love what you're doing. I think I'm on board with it. I'm completely a fan of the idea and I appreciate you coming on to chat about it. It's It's been a fun conversation. I love digging into this stuff. There's so many directions we take this. So I appreciate you giving us the lowdown on kind of what you have going on and thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Finance for Physicians. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.